in the days leading up uh, to the start of World War I, or rather England's joining in World War I, the great uh, science fiction author H.G. Wells wrote a piece designed to encourage England to enter into the war, to not keep a distance, but to enter into the war to oppose uh, the encroaching German army. The name of the piece has become known as The War to End All Wars. He referred to World War I as the war to end all wars. His argument for urging England to enter into the war was that if we enter into this war, if we fight uh, this militant German army now, then it'll ensure centuries of peace for the world, for Western Europe, that this stand, this place will be the war to end all wars. And while we know uh, from the vantage point of history how that worked out, that World War I, the bloodiest conflict in human history, wasn't the war to end all wars, right? It was followed shortly thereafter by World War II. It's been followed shortly thereafter by some of the bloodiest, uh, the bloodiest century that the world's ever seen. And so when we mention the war to end all wars now, you'll see it referenced sometimes. It's often done with a hint of cynicism. But yet this is still uh, how most politicians in most countries sell wars to people. Right, that if we go into war here, it'll ensure peace there. If we go into war now, it'll buy peace for our children and for their children. If we defeat this enemy, then there won't be future enemies. And we fall for it every time. Right? We, we, want, we want so badly for it to be true, for this war to be the last one, for defeating this enemy uh, to be the last enemy. And I think it's such a powerful idea to us because it merges two things. It, it merges our longing for peace. Every one of us wants to live in a world at harmony and at peace. We want our children to grow in a world at peace. We don't want our children to be drafted, to be drawn up into the next great war. So we long for peace. We're hungry for it. And yet we know that this world has real evil in it. There really are forces that need to be stopped. There really are forces that threaten our peace and our harmony. And so there's this incredibly powerful idea that that we could enter into conflict against these forces of evil that we know are out there and be victorious over them and guarantee peace, flourishing, wholeness for the world ever after. You know, Israel had a hope for a type of war that ends all wars that would usher in peace for centuries, peace forever. Their hope through everything they went through, through captivity and slavery, through all of it, was that God himself would intervene in the world, that he himself would fight for them, that he would fight for righteousness and bring a true and final and lasting peace. We see this in Isaiah chapter 59, starting in the back part of verse 15. I'm going to read it. Listen in the midst of this for the plot of what's going on and also listen, tune in your ear for the way that Paul picks up this language from Isaiah 59 in what he writes that we just read. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So he looks out, he looks out at the injustice of the world, and then he also looks and sees that there's no one righteous enough to fight on the behalf of righteousness and justice. He saw that there was no man, and then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. 
He put on righteousness as a a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. This is what Paul and the early church believed had happened in Jesus Christ. That God, seeing no other Redeemer, seeing no one on earth who is righteous enough to fight for righteousness, stepped down out of heaven, that he got dressed in full humanity, and entered into our world, broken as it is, to bring redemption, to bring healing, to fight the battle for us that we could not fight. Paul hits on this. We've seen already in Ephesians chapter 4 when it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train. What, What Paul is saying is that Jesus fought the battle. He fought the war to end all wars on our behalf. And now he sits as king over a creation that's been restored. And yet it's just as easy uh, with the hindsight of history to look back on that moment like we look back on World War I and say, really? If Jesus assured final victory and final peace, final victory over all the forces of evil and injustice and sin, it doesn't look like it. We still fight. We still experience injustice. We still experience warfare. And so what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 6 is actually getting to exactly this question that he believes that just as Christ was dressed, was God dressed in humanity, putting on his armor to do battle with sin and death, so he clothes the church with himself and sends us into the world as his representatives to continue to fight this cosmic battle against the forces of evil, to continue to fight to push back darkness, to push back injustice and ignorance, and to bring the fullness of Christ's kingdom into the world. That just as Christ fought as God's representative, so the church fights as Christ's representative on earth. That we are actively engaged in the war to end all wars. That one day, the most important conflict going on in the world now or throughout history is God's battle through Christ and his church with the forces of evil, with the forces of sin. That that battle, more than any other, is the real battle at the heart of the world, at the heart of the universe. And so, uh, having seen the importance of this battle that we're in, we want to look at it. We want to talk about it. From this passage, I think we see three things. We're going to look at the, the nature of our conflict, the nature of this battle that we're engaged in, our resources in the midst of this battle, and then finally, what it looks like to carry out this struggle in our daily lives. First, the nature of our struggle. Verse 11, Paul tells us, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We're fighting against the schemes of the devil. And he reminds us that we do not fight against flesh and against blood. That the church is involved in a spiritual conflict against the supernatural forces of evil in the world. 
You know, it's, it's incredibly difficult and incredibly um, questioned by the world around us. Whenever anyone under the guise of religion, under the guise of faith, starts talking about conflict, right? The idea that faith might lead us into conflict is a difficult one. We understand that faith is meant to lead us into peace and into flourishing. So how then could it also lead us into warfare? Well, you know, it's, it's, I think it's at the forefront of one of the reasons why people have a difficult time believing the truth or believing the Christian message. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, the late Christopher Hitchens, in his book, God is Not Great, he was one of the, one of the new atheist thinkers. Uh, his book, God is Not Great, is basically built on the idea that religion, that the belief in God has been overall bad for the world, that overall we'd all be better off without it in any way, shape, or form. He writes this, violent, irrational, and intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry, invested in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive towards children, organized religion ought to have a great deal on its conscience. And he starts that with violence. And I think the world in general, if they were to think, do Christians need to be more belligerent, more more at war or less, they would say, actually, we could do with less of that. We could do with less of a culture war. We could do with less um, Christians against the the world. And I think it's because fundamentally we often come to misunderstand the conflict which the church by its nature is in. What does he say? Your fight is against the supernatural forces of evil, not against flesh and blood. Not against flesh and blood. You are not at war with your neighbor. You are not at war with the neighbor who disagrees with you. We are not at war with our neighbors. The call of the gospel is not to be at war with people for the truth. It's to be at war for the sake of people with the forces of evil. Imagine, what if our neighbors, both in the public square and our actual neighbors, instead of feeling like the church was fighting against them, knew that the church was fighting for them, knew that the church believed that there really was evil in the world, that there really are forces at the world that prevent the flourishing of our neighborhoods and our cities and our communities and our nations, and that the church were their allies, that we were in our neighborhoods and in our cities and even in the public square for the purpose of fighting against all that deforms God's good creation, all of the sin and injustice that holds us back, and that we fought not with them but for them, You know, the gospel calls us to look on our neighbors with the eyes of compassion. There's this great line in Matthew where it says that Jesus looked out on the crowds and he saw that they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Our neighbors are, are just as hopeless and lost as we are. They're groping their way through this world where they feel uh, temptations they don't know what to deal with and struggle uh, with relationships, struggle to find faith, just as we do. And we fight not against our neighbors, not with flesh and blood, but on behalf of our neighbors, against everything uh, that would impair their flourishing. You know, I saw a great picture of this recently. Uh, my own, uh, the church that I pastored as an assistant pastor prior to moving to Jacksonville, uh, Lake Baldwin Church in central Orlando. We've prayed for that church as well as some other uh, of our sister churches in Orlando over the past several weeks in the wake of the shooting at Pulse Nightclub. Uh, 
We've prayed for them. We've prayed, haven't we, that God would use uh, this horrible, horrible darkness to allow his church to minister grace and healing and forgiveness and reconciliation in the midst of a scarred community. Well, Lake Baldwin Church, uh, a church just a few miles uh, from the scene of the shooting, I saw this week many of our friends there. They raised a good deal of money to buy gift cards um, for groceries, for other stores in the center of Orlando that might be helpful. And they wrote letters, both in English and in Spanish. Many of the victims uh, of the shooting were, uh, were Spanish-speaking people in Orlando. They wrote, wrote letters of condolence in English and in Spanish, uh, wrote with uh, numbers that they could call as a place to get counseling and help, as well as some, a gift card to help with some of the practical needs they may have in the midst of this. And I thought, what a beautiful picture. In the wake of, of that horrible tragedy, when the world's looking to the church to figure out, are we going to hear another voice of judgment, of condemnation? And no, they, they enter into it um, with words of encouragement, words of love, words of healing. What a beautiful picture that our battle in this life is not against flesh and blood, even flesh and blood that we might disagree with, but it's with the spiritual forces of darkness under which all mortal flesh and blood struggle. So it's the nature of this battle that we're in. Uh, fought not with swords, but with love. I lo- you know, I love this, this idea that if the, if, our, if the one who finally won the victory in this battle is Christ, how did he enter into the world and win this victory? It wasn't as a warrior. It wasn't as one who came to conquer his enemies. But through one who submitted in love, died on the cross to effect reconciliation and hope and healing. If that's the the Christ whose victory we are to work out, then it makes sense that our battle would never, ever be a battle that takes life, but only be a battle in which we lay down our lives to give life. I love the way that Paul talks about it here. Verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. He imagines the church as ambassadors of peace. Men and women who come into the world announcing the terms of peace. Peace with God. Peace within humanity. What often happens to people who come as announcers of peace in a world at war? They often die. They often suffer. They often have to lay down their lives for the cause of peace. But that's the the nature of our struggle. Secondly, the the resources uh, that we have in this conflict the resources that God's given us. And here we come to this this lengthy passage that that we talk about, the armor of God. Paul goes through various pieces of armor that would have been familiar in the ancient world. These are the the pieces of armor that that an ancient soldier, a Roman soldier, would have worn a helmet and a breastplate and a shield and a belt and the whole deal. And he assigns metaphorically these pieces of armor to all that we have in Christ to all that's been given to us in Christ. We've seen that he uses the language of Isaiah 59, that this is God's own armor. The things that are true of God himself, his righteousness, his holiness, his truth, that we're to be clothed in. You know, the simple way of looking at this is that our resources in the midst of this struggle against evil in the world is that we are clothed in the life of God himself that we are clothed in the very character of God, that in joining with God by faith, 
in being, in being made one with Christ, what's true of him increasingly becomes true of us. All that's true of him, all, that his, all the resources that he had, his truth in a world of deceit, his righteousness in a world of wickedness, his faithfulness in a world of broken promises, that joined to God in Christ, were clothed with him. Just like at the end of the, the prodigal son story, if you know that story, the son returns home to his father. And in the midst of that reconciliation and redemption, the father clothes him with his own clothes. He puts his robe on him, puts his sandals on him, puts his ring on his finger. They were clothed in the very clothing of Christ. And we do our battle in the armor that we have through his resources. That means that as we live our lives in a world of temptation, in a world of evil, in a world of suffering, that we're to lean into our union with Christ. We're to join ourselves with him by faith, taking full advantage of all that we have in him. The way that Paul puts it is that we're to pray at all times in the spirit, that we're to, that we're to always be, be leaning into Christ, praying, casting our needs on him, and trusting him. For all, the, all that we go through, all that we uh, sustain in the way of, of suffering and temptation in this world, that we are clothed in the very life of God. What does it mean to pray always? To pray always, to, to pray always in the Spirit. Well, it doesn't mean that every day you're not going to work and you're not parenting and you're not doing anything human because you're just constantly praying. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean is that prayer is such a constant part of your life that the rhythms of prayer come to so permeate your life that it casts its, its peace and its meaning over everything that you do, that you live, as we sang earlier, as the, the communion of a child and a father comes to mark your daily life. You know, one of the ways, just to, to urge you towards something practical, one of the ways that we go about that in this congregation is through our rhythms of spiritual life. We've got a booklet over there that we'd love for you to pick up. It's free. Um, and, it, and in there, you'll find some rhythms that we've adopted as a church to seek to live out what it means to pray always. Patterns for daily and morning and evening prayer. Patterns for reading uh, the Psalms and the Old Testament and the New Testament. Rhythms of living in spiritual health and vitality before God. And we'd encourage you to take advantage of that because your life, life following Christ in this world is a struggle. And apart from rhythms of community and prayer and health, we'll struggle in the midst of this conflict. So the resources that Paul lays out for us, uh, there's the resources of our life with God and then there's the resources of our life with one another. The setting of Ephesians, Paul's writing this letter from the midst of a Roman prison. He's writing this letter from the midst of a Roman prison. And he writes saying this. He writes saying, pray for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So he's looking to them for prayer and for encouragement and then he writes in 21, so that you may know how I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. See what Paul's doing? Even Paul, the, 
the man who wrote most of our New Testament, in the midst of his imprisonment, in the midst of his struggle, he's leaning on the community of faith. He's saying, pray for me and encourage me, and I'm sending this guy to you so that you'll hear how I'm doing and that it could be an encouragement to you. The spiritual conflict that we're in is not an individualistic battle against evil. I don't know how many times growing up that I've heard this passage taught or preached, and it was always in that very individualistic way. You know, if you're struggling with with lust or sexuality, you just need to buckle up that belt of truth tighter. Um, If you're struggling with your emotional life, you need to put on that breastplate of righteousness. If you're struggling in your thought life, you need to put on that helmet of salvation. But this is not primarily a passage about how you as an individual go about your Christian life. It's a passage about how we as a church, as a community of faith, go about the mission of God in an evil and broken world. And to do that, we need the resources that we have in Christ. We need the truth and righteousness that we have in him. But we also need one another. Paul needed, you know, if you have a Bible that has headings uh, over the sections, chapter, uh, sections 21 through 24 are probably labeled something like final greetings. That, that's a lame title for a section of, a, of the Bible. That, that tells you, yeah, you can, you can skip the rest. You know, the rest isn't that much that important. It's just people with funny names saying hi to each other. But no, this is crucial to Paul's vision of what it means to live as a Christian in a broken world. It means that you lean on one another. You are never meant to engage with this on your own. You are never meant to live the Christian life on your own, but to do so in community, taking full advantage of the resources that you have, not only in your spiritual life in God, but in your personal and communal life with God's people. You need one another. So, how do we engage in this conflict in our day and in our time? I just want to look at say a couple of things about this. Some of us need to realize that life in this world is a life in conflict. by, By bent of personality and by sin, I am more or less a conflict avoidant person. I would rather we all could just get along. Um, I would rather live uh, in a world free of conflict, to be quite honest. And some of us uh, are like that. Some of you are like me. And we need to come to terms with the fact that life with God in this world between Christ's first coming and his return to make all things right is a life at conflict. We We are engaged in a conflict in which there is no hiding. Wishing it weren't true won't make it not true. That you do have an enemy that's out to tempt. You have an enemy that's out to deceive. That you will face struggling and sorrow. You will face disagreement in your relationships. That this life is a conflict. And we need to be willing uh, to enter into it. The Christian life is not a spiritual vacation, but a spiritual battle that we're called to. And I think, in fact, I know that my prayer life would be a whole lot different if I believed that were true. When I pray little, it's because I believe that I have little need of grace, little need of God's active intervention and hand in my life. But when I feel myself to be overwhelmed and tempted and afflicted and struggling, then I pray a lot more, and I know a lot more that I need God's hand in my life. So for some of us, we need to recognize uh, that we really are in the midst of a conflict. But some of us need to realize uh, that our conflict is not with flesh and blood. 
Some of us need to realize what we talked about earlier, that it's not our neighbors. It's not us against our neighbors, no matter how sharp uh, those disagreements might be. That it's not a battle. It's not a culture war against people who believe differently than us. It's not a civilizational war with our Muslim neighbors. Right? It's not a war against flesh and blood, no matter how different that flesh and blood appears to you. It's a battle against the spiritual forces of evil. But we should say that though that battle is not against flesh and blood, that the spiritual forces of evil do take physical expression in this world, that the spiritual forces of evil express themselves in personal and structural expressions of evil. That's what we see Paul doing when he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We can't forget that he's writing from, the, from a jail cell that he was put there by Caesar. He's using the language of Roman government, authorities, and powers to talk about the spiritual forces of evil. We talked about this earlier in Ephesians, but in Paul's view, there's the spiritual enemies, the, the spiritual forces of personal evil, but they work through human beings and human culture to create systems of evil, systems of power and domination and injustice that do limit human life and human flourishing. And our battle is against those forces, those, those structures of evil. You know, I, this past week, had a chance to be in uh, Mobile, Alabama for our denomination's General Assembly. We don't, I don't talk a whole lot about our denomination uh, here. Or, or mostly we, we experience the life of this church in, in this particular place. But I have to say, I have never in my years of ministry in the Presbyterian Church, uh, the Presbyterian Church in America is our denomination, I've never left one of these general assemblies as full and encouraged as I left this last one. Now, part of that, to be sure, was seeing old friends and catching up and just enjoying some wonderful time and fellowship together. But part of it was because of what we did uh, when we gathered together. The PCA was started in 1973, uh, launched mostly out of the Southern Presbyterian Church, the old PCUS. And if you're familiar at all with Southern history, uh, you know that oftentimes the Presbyterian Church was a, a spokesman and a shelter for the status quo of uh, racial power in the, in, in the South. That the Southern Presbyterian Church during the time of slavery often did not speak out against it, but instead often just endorsed it and said the church should stay, after, stay out of such things because the church's ministry is spiritual, not political. Likewise, during the era of Jim Crow and desegregation in the civil rights era, the Southern Presbyterian Church again uh, often hid behind this idea of the, the spirituality of the church, that our mission and our authority is spiritual, not political, so we won't say anything, but... We'll stay white, we'll stay segregated, we'll stay behind our walls. And so now, even though our denomination was not, was not in existence at the time, we are an inheritor of all of that legacy. And so it was, it was powerful together. Our denomination, the, the, uh, the clergy of our denomination, is now roughly 
20% Asian, about 5% African American, uh, 2 or 3% Latino, and then the rest white, whatever that percentage is. I won't do math. Um, but it was so powerful and so amazing to hear all of those people with one voice praying and passing a resolution of repentance, saying that we too are guilty, not only of the sins of our fathers and our forefathers, but of our continued willingness to live in a divided world. I don't often do this, and I probably won't do it again, but I'm going to read to you uh, the words of a resolution that we passed uh, last week at our General Assembly. You'll have to get used. I'm going to speak Presbyterian for a minute. It's kind of, it's kind of weird. Therefore, be it resolved that the 44th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America does recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of corporate and historical sins, including those committed during the civil rights era in continuing racial sins of ourselves and our fathers, such as the segregation of worshipers by race, the exclusion of persons from church membership on the basis of race, the exclusion of churches or elders from membership in the presbyteries on the basis of race, the teaching that the Bible sanctions racial segregation and discourages interracial marriage, the participation in and defense of white supremacist organizations, and the failure to live out the gospel imperative that love does no wrong to a neighbor. And be it further resolved that this General Assembly does recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of past failures of love, brothers and sisters from minority cultures in accordance with what the gospel requires, as well as failures to lovingly confront our brothers and sisters concerning racial sins and personal bigotry and failing to learn to do good, seek justice, and correct oppression. And be it further resolved that this General Assembly praises and recommits itself to the gospel task of racial reconciliation, diligently seeking effective courses of action to further that goal with humility, sincerity, and zeal for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel. And be it further resolved that this General Assembly urges our congregations and presbyteries of the PCA to make this resolution known to their members in order that they may prayerfully confess their own racial sins as led by the Spirit and strive towards racial reconciliation for the advancement of the gospel, the love of Christ, and the glory of God. So what we're confessing there is actually right at the center of what Paul's saying here. Is that yes, the church has a spiritual ministry. Our spirit, we, we are in a spiritual battle against the forces of evil. But those spiritual forces of evil take concrete sociological forms in the ways that human beings relate to one another, in the ways that people in power relate to those without power. And to be engaged in that ministry, that spiritual battle, requires that we take on both. And so we're doing it through the weapons of the gospel, through repentance and trusting in God's mercy. After this, passing this resolution, we prayed together. We had a, one of our oldest African-American pastors and one of our oldest white pastors pray together. And then we sang, it is well with my soul. And when we sang that line, my sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought, my sin not in part with the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. You could feel us singing it as though we knew what we, were, we, we had real sin that needed being nailed to a real cross. And so as we labor with the resources of the gospel, 
against a spiritual force of evil as well as the, the social structures that it, that, it, that it brings to us. We keep uh, this and we are doing the spiritual battle against the forces of evil that we're called to here. May it not take us 50 years uh, to see the structural uh, forces of evil in our generation and in our day, but could we labor against them now? And so in conclusion, uh, we are at the end of Ephesians. This journey that has seen us go from this big picture gospel, God reconciling all things to himself, through the picture of the church as his reconciled humanity, through what relationships in that church look like and mutual submission and love. And now to this charge to continue to take the victory of Christ over the forces of division and evil and to work it out in our own church, in our own neighborhood, in our own city. What will it mean for us? Well, I'd want our church. Ephesians is a big book. It's, a, it's not long, but it's big. It has a big view of what we're doing in the church. Oftentimes in the midst of a church plant, it's typical, to, it's easy to get lost in the littleness of what we're doing here. Like, I'm not pushing back the cosmic forces of evil. I'm changing diapers. <laughs> and I'm teaching a children's class. And I'm greeting new people when they show up. And I'm opening my home for a group or for a dinner with friends. What I'm doing isn't big, it's very small. But what Paul says is that those small things, are a part of the biggest thing in the universe, the extension and application of Christ's victory over sin in the world. There's this incredible story I'll close with. In, uh, in 1732, two Moravian missionaries, young men living in Germany, heard a report um, from the West Indies, uh, the Caribbean, the U.S. Virgin Islands. They heard a report of 2,000 slaves working on one plantation under a German master. And they became determined, they felt called to go as missionaries to those slaves to tell them the good news. This had never been done before. The people around them said, no, you can't go as missionaries to slaves. We don't go as missionaries to slaves. But they had a conviction in their bones that they had to, believing what Paul told us in Ephesians, that the gospel is for all people, one people, they said, no, we have to go. Even if it means selling ourselves into slavery so that we end up on the same plantation, we're going to go. And so they did that. These two men, two German white men, sold themselves to a slave trader, got on his boat, and set off for the West Indies. As they said goodbye, likely for the last time, to all of their loved ones, as the ship pulled away from the shore, they were heard yelling from the deck of the ship, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward for his suffering. May the lamb that was slain, may Jesus receive the reward that he purchased by his blood, a people made up of black and white, rich and poor, may he receive the reward for his suffering. That, Paul would tell us, in the midst of the smallness of our ministry, is what's at stake. That what we labor for is not our own victory, but so that the Lamb who was slain, the victorious Christ, might receive the reward for his suffering. Right? That's what's going on 
in, a, in, an, in an event that no one else in the world seemed to care about, a bunch of Presbyterian pastors taking time to repent and to come to one another and to embrace one another and to commit to a new way forward. To the world, that does not matter. To Christ, it matters because that's the unity that he purchased by his blood. That is what Christ purchased. That's so that the slain lamb could receive the reward for his suffering. That's why we're committed to planting churches in every neighborhood in our city to bring the gospel in a way that people can understand to the diverse and many neighborhoods of our city, Mandarin, East, in town, eventually out at the beach. Not so that Christ Church can get a great reputation in the city, but so that people can hear the gospel and so that the lamb who was slain could receive the reward for his suffering. That's why we seek to love our neighbors here in this part of the city, where we seek to bring uh, the good news of God's grace, why we seek to bring hope and healing and justice here where he's placed us. Not so that we can feel better about ourselves, but so that the lamb who was slain can receive the reward for his suffering. Let's pray.